Hey, deserving listeners, I thought I would answer patron emails today. This first email is from M from Maryland. They write, I've been watching your series on 90 Day Fiancé and your brief discussion on colonial ideologies with Lisa and Usman has left me wondering about the ethics of countering potentially harmful ideologies in clients. Part of me recognizes that attempting to address such ideologies with clients could damage the therapeutic alliance and that people might interpret this as an attempt of the therapist to force a certain political perspective onto their clients. Another part of me feels that not only could silence be interpreted by the client as an endorsement, but also that failing to name prejudiced ideologies and their sources could ultimately withhold from the client critical insight as to the source of their emotions in certain situations. My question is, when and how do you ethically address client behaviors that perpetuate systems of oppression? As a future, as a future potential non-binary therapist of color, I do also feel I have a personal stake in exploring these questions should a client have a prejudiced attitude toward my identities. End of email. Yeah, M in Maryland, extremely intelligent email and very well uh, discussed here. And what I will say in brief is that this is a tough question and there are many considerations and you are describing the tension between the two sides very eloquently. On one hand, we don't want to push our political views on our clients. On the other hand, we need to stand up for the oppressed and do what is right, do what is moral. And we need to try to help change our society one person at a time. So what do we do? Do we refrain from saying what was on our mind? Uh, and do we refrain from trying to, you know, because essentially what we're trying to do is say, hey, you have a racist or you have, you have an oppressive or you have a colonial ideology. And as your therapist, I'm recommending that you change it. Now, you should probably have a justification like with Lisa Newsman, for example, on 90 Day Fiance, the, the reality TV show that I was reacting to. If Lisa has a, a colonial ideology that she has been indoctrinated into, and this interferes with her ability to have a compassionate or fair approach to her husband, Usman, then it is absolutely within the goals of the therapy, if the, if the couple is coming in for couples therapy, to address her colonial or racist or otherizing attitudes, because um, it's, it's directly correlated with the, with the goals. However, there are situations where uh, things will be said by a client that won't necessarily have a direct link to the goals of therapy. Um, just some examples that I can think of off the top of my head from my practice. I will sometimes talk about this as because this happened early in my career, maybe in the first few years. And I, I really remember I, rem I remember it uh, going through it as a therapist and, and solidifying my general approach to this sort of situation. So I was talking with a family and there were two daughters and they the whole family is white and the, it was just dad, single dad and two daughters, two teenage daughters. And the father was complaining very abrasively that his daughters were dating Mexican boys in the community, uh, Mexican-American or Mexican immigrant boys. And the dad was very upset about this because you know how Mexicans are, that kind of thing. And I was so taken aback by how racist this statement was that I didn't really think, I didn't stop to think if 
saying something against that, uh, calling out the racism, was in line with the goals. I just acted spontaneously and said, that, my friend, is racist, and let me tell you why. And I laid it all out. And I had a good enough relationship with the dad that he took it, and the daughters appreciated it. And later on, I reflected back on it and thought, hmm, is that me crossing the line? Is that me imposing my point of view? Is that me just combating racism for no particular reason that's connected to the goals of the therapy? Or is it actually connected? And you could argue that it was connected, but I didn't think about it at the time. It could it could have been connected because he was overly afraid of his daughter's dating behaviors because of racist ideologies that have been pumped into his head by people in the community and, dare I say, politicians. And so if he were to have a uh, distorted negative narrative about these fellas, then that's going to cause him to be more afraid and thus more strict with the daughters and harm the daughters in emotional ways. And so changing his racist attitude would actually enhance the, or, you know, lower the conflict and increase the functionality of the family. But I didn't think about it at the time. I just acted. And I thought about this later on and consulted and really had um, a reckoning with my uh, policy or my approach to this sort of thing. And I decided, you know what, as a person who wants to make the world a better place, regardless of what context I'm in, I am going to act um, I'm going to try to act because there are so many different oppressive, colonial, racist, sexist, heterosexist, transphobic, you know, you name it, ageist, classist notions floating around society. And if no one does anything, then they just persist. And so I'm going to do my tiny little part to try to change it. And so I made a policy that, you know what, if I sacrifice my therapeutic alliance with a client, if I ruin my relationship with a client and they end up firing me because I push back on something that was racist or sexist, then so be it. And I'm, I'm willing to take that risk. That doesn't mean I'm cavalier and I just go in all guns and blazing. I mean, I do everything I can to preserve the relationship. But if that doesn't work, then, then I, I don't want to live in a world where I have to sit on you know, my words and not say, not stick up for people who need to be stuck up for. But that's me. Not every therapist has to do that. And every therapist is on their own path regarding that. Some people will be even more vocal than me, some less. But we all have to figure that out. And there's there's wiggle room in there. There's a space for us to explore our own approach. You could make an argument that if you said nothing, then that's okay. Uh, you could say that, well, you know, it's not really my place. I'm here to work on this particular goal. And I don't really want to jeopardize my relationship with them by pointing this out. And then other people might say, you know what? I don't care if something if something wrong is happening and and all you know because it, it's not just that racist attitudes towards towards Mexican boys that is the problem. It's racism in general and all the other things that come with it, including death, including you know just ab, you know systemic horribleness and genocide i mean all sorts of things are born when a collective group of people believe in oppressive ideas and and propagate them and no one pushes back so you know there's various different you know i i i even have a a former supervisee who his entire approach was anti-oppression he saw 
that oppression and internalized oppression was the primary cause of every problem that comes into therapy. So you could orient yourself entirely around oppression and, and pushing back against oppression and internalized oppression. Uh, another example that comes to mind was I was not working as a therapist, but I was working as a psychology professional with a bunch of teenagers and they were all socializing and I was in the middle of all of it. And one of the boys said, oh my God, that's so gay. And so this is back when people were still saying this. I hope no one says this anymore, but it was really common. Um, in fact, I was rewatching 500 Days of Summer with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and that other actress, I can't remember her name, but they... I remember loving this movie 10 years ago. I think I talked about this in another episode. <laughs> but I, in that movie, one of the friends of the guy says, oh, my God, that's so gay. And when I saw that 10 years ago, I know I didn't like it because I've never understood why you would say that. Oh, my God, that's so gay. Like, what are you saying? <laughs> oh, my God, that's so heterosexual. Like, what does that even mean? But I, I know what they're trying to say. It's 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 based on a just a terribly homophobic idea and heterosexist idea and just it's like one of the dumbest that anyway so they're like oh my god it's it's so gay and i just immediately snapped at him and i said you you're not going to say that around me so and, and that's incredibly heterosexist so i i advise you to come up with it you can say that in a number of different ways like, oh, my God, that's so ridiculous or something. You do not have to say that. I just publicly shamed him in front of everybody because I – that sort of – you know, I don't know what it is about me. But, you know, sometimes when you take those personality tests, there's this dimension of anti – you know, like you're constantly trying to achieve justice. And I feel like that's me. I, I feel like whenever I see injustice, it just aggravates me so much. And I've been this way since I was a kid. I, I remember certain things would happen. Like, in, um, I remember this one kid was being bullied, and I didn't even really like him. I, I didn't like the kid. Actually, actually, I didn't like him at all. <laughs> there was this kid in our in our group, and I was I didn't like him at all. And other kids, they weren't really terribly bullying him, but but they would just and he would he would actually play into it that this this boy he would he would he sort of owned it he's like yeah i'm i'm a, i'm ridiculous and everyone would be talking down to him and so no one was upset you know even the kid being bullied didn't appear to be upset and i just i just couldn't take it i'm like hey everyone stop talking to him like that it's not fair you're you're i don't i can't remember what i said but there's just something about that anyway so I incorporate that into my work with my with my clients. Another example that pops into my head is that when men refuse to do housework, you know, I'll be working with a couple or a family and the the husband, the father just doesn't do housework or has very different excuses like, well, I'm helping out sometimes, you know, it's like, well, you know, I have a hard day's work, this kind of stuff. And I'll just blast him. I'll say, so I'm just going to tell you, it's incredibly sexist. And there are times when the wife actually doesn't complain because she has also internalized the oppression and believes that men don't need to do the work. And so even though no one's complaining, you know, the wife isn't saying, I want him to do more work. I will still yell at the guy, not yell, but I'll confront him and say, there's a possibility that your both of your idea about what's fair in terms of housework is based on a massive sexist idea that men don't have to do housework and that women are supposed to do all of it, even when women are working 40-hour-a-week jobs. 
So there are times when I'll, I'll just point that out. Now, like I said, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm always trying to preserve the relationship. I'm always trying to say it in a nice way and I'll self-disclose. I'll be like, and you know, I, I've been indoctrinated into this society too. And, and I have a hard time sifting through that stuff sometimes. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm not above you. I'm, I'm with you and we're all in this together. And if I ever say anything that is oppressive or heterosexist or sexist or anything or classist, you let me know too, you know, that that's the attitude that I wish society had. Unfortunately, it's not in our cancel culture, um, which has to some extent gotten out of control a little bit. I think some cancel culture is absolutely justified, but some of it is, is getting out of control in my opinion. And the, the way that me and my colleagues and me and my students talk about oppression, we don't cancel each other. When someone makes a mistake, we just say, Hey, I just want to point out that thing that you said was a little transphobic and here's why. And it kind of hurt me. And then the the person that is being accused says, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean that. Um, thanks for telling me. That's all it takes. That's that's how change is made. We don't make change by tweeting, uh, you know, we need to, you know, cancel someone. You know, some change, I'm, I'm going to say that some canceling is, is worth it. You know, canceling Harvey Weinstein, for example, or Kevin Spacey, or I don't know, some of these others is probably justified, but... It seems like we live in a world right now where, and maybe we've always lived in this world, where instead of just giving people the benefit of the doubt and saying, hey, what you did was not okay, and here's why, instead of doing that and and, and assuming and trusting the other person will hear, or at least giving them a chance, we just jump down people's throats. And I'm guilty of that. I, you know, I... I, I usually, most of the time, I do not say it in a nice way. I usually jump down people's throats. Not clients. Usually clients, I'm nicer. But with people in my personal life, I've I've jumped down people's throats. Um, someone in my family not too long ago said something just classically homophobic, and I just jumped down his throat. I was just like, I just laid into him because I know how to combat. I know the things. I I know homophobia when I see it, <laughs> and. And what he said was just so classically homophobic. And, and I, I just, instead of saying, hey, you know, what you said was homophobic and it, it bothers me that you said that. And here's, let me tell you why. And, and the person that said the homophobic thing is a perfectly wonderful, nice person. But I didn't take that in consideration. You know, I just jumped down their throat. And the conversation ended very abruptly and, and awkwardly. And I don't know if the person took what I said to heart because we just all agree that I flipped out. And <laughs> now I think it's understandable, you know, the, the amount of homophobia and heterosexism and oppression and literal murder that happens to gay people and bisexual people and trans people and queer people every day justifies some level of emotion. But at the same time, if we're going to change something when you can, you know, try to, try to be nice, give, give the other person a chance. We've all done it, Right. We've all made those mistakes. And when we made the mistake, do we want to be jumped? Do we want our throat to be jumped down? Or do we want someone to just say, hey, you know, and that, I've, that's happened to me. People have said to me, um, you know, in the field that I work in as a professor, as a therapist, a supervisor, podcaster, there are times when there are going to be things that I say that aren't going to be um, in line with justice. <laughs> So funny way to put it. Um, 
that are going to be unjust. And, uh, you know, to to try to avoid that is to essentially avoid talking about anything at some point. So you're going to you're going to make mistakes. I make mistakes. And if someone tells me, hey, you made a mistake, I'm sure you didn't mean it, but here's why, then, you know, I'm willing to listen to that. And but when someone decides to, you know, just jump down my throat, which happens all the time in the Internet, I can't just because the Internet just breeds that kind of attitude. But anyway, so M from Maryland, what's the solution? You're going to enter the field. Well, the thing is, is, uh, you know, you need mentorship along this line. So you want to find someone that really is in line with your way of thinking and you can talk with them about how you should be as a therapist or the options you have available to you, what explorations you need to go on. Obviously, supervision, consultation. But what you want to do is you want to develop your approach as a clinician regarding these questions. There's no right answer. There's a range of different options because there's pros and cons to you know the various different sides of the spectrum. And once you have an approach, you want to tell people up front. If you decide that oppression and anti-racism and anti-sexism, anti-heterosexism, anti-ableism is a big part of your approach, then you want to tell people up front so that they know what they're getting into. All right, this next email is from David from Linwood. He writes, I heard there will be a biopic on Hart, the band, and I have heard that the Hart sisters grew up in Sammamish, where you grew up. Do you have any stories you can share growing up near them? Uh, So just chiming in. Uh, No, but I did grow up knowing that they came from the area and they were, you know, Seattle, especially back then, didn't have a lot that we could be proud of. <laughs> In fact, you know, today you say, I'm from Seattle and there's a certain amount of pride. But but when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, it was, it was it, you, you were ashamed of growing up in Seattle. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it's really actually kind of bizarre. Um, when I, uh, you know, was... In my 20s, I lived in Ballard, in Ballard, Seattle. Ballard's a sub, you know, a part of Seattle. And I was absolutely ashamed to live in Ballard. And now, if you live in Ballard, that's that's la-ti-da. It's like, ooh, you're young and cool and hip and rich. And <laughs> um, so it's it's been weird. But anyway, Hart, knowing that Hart was from the area was a big deal. But I didn't know they were from Sammamish. I always thought they were from Bellevue. I think they might have lived near Sammamish, but I don't think they grew up in the town of Sammamish. In fact, the town of Sammamish didn't even exist until the 90s. Um, it was where I grew up is now called Sammamish, but when I was growing up, it was actually unincorporated King County. It was the closest city was or the closest town was Issaquah. And by the way, just to give you an idea of just how sub, uh, rural this was, now it's just burgeoning with houses and traffic and everything. But when I grew up, there was no so on the Sammamish plateau where i grew up it's a pretty big area there was no light there was you know no traffic light <laughs> and and only one store and that store people literally rode their horses to the store and there was a hitch that you could you know tie your horses off to, <laughs> on so in the entire plateau there's one tiny store called Sadler's and then downtown Issaquah there was just one traffic light so just imagine how small it you know small town america anyway so, but I'm looking forward to the uh, biopic. Uh, Hart has some amazing songs. I mean, the Dog and Butterfly. Other, I mean, uh, Barracuda. I mean, they rock. And then they had that whole '80s, late '80s resurgence. You know, uh, uh, I could sing a couple bars, but I won't. <laughs> you also say, David. By the way, my wife and son and I were coming down from 
Pupu Point, that's, you know, near where I grew up, during sunset towards Issaquah High, during, towards the Issaquah High School side, and a black bear crossed the trail in front of me, freaked me out. From now on, I think I'm only going to go up the other side. Right. So David from Linwood is saying that they were hiking near my old high school and they ran into a black bear. And yeah, there are bears, you know, there's still enough um, uh, wilderness that there's, there's still bears. One time me and my friend were riding our bikes on a trail and we came around a corner and then there was a, there was just a bear just like right in front of us and it freaked us out and we, we hightailed it uh, back the way we came. All right. This next email is from Hallie from California. They write, Hi, I'm a student at Bernard College studying sociology and graduating in the spring of 2021. It's very close to now. I'm interested in going to graduate school for social work and becoming a private practice therapist like you. I'm wondering if you could do a podcast on career advice and options for going into the field, like what school to go to, licensure, benefits of having a doctorate, all the different pathways, etc. End of email. Yeah, Hallie. So I've done a number of episodes on this, and you can go to the website and go to, I think it's Novice Therapists uh, page, and there are a number of episodes on this issue. So I won't go into too much detail, but just to review some of the highlights is that uh, if you want to go into private practice, what you probably should do is go to a school that is for counselors, for you know mental health counselors. This would be a KCREP school. So this is a master's in mental health counseling or get a master's in marriage and family therapy. Getting a master's in social work is fine, and there's plenty of private practice therapists that do have a master's in, in social work. But master's in social work, it's the practice of therapy is only part of the degree. If you get a master's in social work, you're being trained to do a lot of other things that really have nothing to do with going into private practice. So if if all you want to do is go into private practice or have a job as a psychotherapist, you probably should only get a master's and it should be in mental health counseling or marriage and family therapy. Now, some people, as you say, say, oh, I want a doctorate. Well, the only reason why you would get a doctorate is if the doctorate is important to you in, or, you know, in terms of your career. To be in private practice, you do not need a doctorate. And having a doctorate doesn't mean you're a better therapist. Uh, research shows this. Uh, for many years in my career as a private practitioner, I was operating with my master's. I only got my doctorate later because I was in academia. And to be frank, in order for me to move up in the ranks of academia, I needed a doctorate just for no other reason other than just elitism, honestly, because I was an already capable professor. I already knew how to do things at the university, and it's just a hoop that they make people jump through. So does a doctorate mean that you might be a better candidate? Yeah. I mean, it's more school. You're learning about other kinds of things. But the the fact that it's basically a requirement is kind of dumb. I'm, I'm glad I got my doctorate. But, um, but anyway, so getting my doctorate had really no bearing on me becoming a better therapist. I, I learned about it. Anyway, I'm not going to go into the weeds on that. But anyway, so there's that. A lot of people especially these days, I think because of classist reasons, are seeking out doctorates just because they think it's they're supposed to or something, because it sounds better. It's like, oh, you know, should I get a doctorate? It's like, well, if you want, and but the difference between master's and doctorate is vast. So uh, you can get a master's in two to three years and spend, you know, fifty to $80,000. A doctorate will take you anywhere from five to eight years, and you are looking at 
a hundred, maybe two hundred thousand, maybe two hundred fifty thousand dollars in loans that you eventually have to pay off, right? So that's a big difference, you know, fifty-five, sixty thousand dollars as opposed to two hundred fifty or two hundred thousand dollars conservatively. You know, two to three years. You know, my program, you can graduate in two years, but the typical doctorate program, it. Well, so it depends on what we mean by doctorate. Usually, you know, if we're talking about a psychology degree, like psychology do- – anyway, I'm not going to get in the weeds. <laughs> the other thing I will say is to make sure that you really find out you want this job because it's a huge commitment, both time and money and effort. And so make sure you uh, find a therapist, find out what they do, find out how much money they make, wh- what are all the annoyances that go with the job, and make sure that it's something that you really want to do because it, it is a commitment. All right, this next email is from an anonymous person. They write, I'm a master's of counseling student in Vancouver, B.C., and I was listening to your landmark forum critique on on episode. I am curious, I'm really curious about something you said about professors. You mentioned that you have witnessed colleagues engineering emotional responses from students as to create these epic moments of connection in class. This is something I feel like I'm experiencing in my master's program. I wonder if you are comfortable speaking to this pattern of personal boundary blurring through required emotional disclosure and counseling training for students. End of email. Yeah, so in the in the landmark forum critique episode that we did a number of years ago, we I was critiquing landmark's approach and as a part of that I was admitting that in my program there are professors that will actually engineer emotional experiences in class as a way of trying to intensify the experience for people. So uh, there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of issues to think about, similar to the anti-racism discussion I said earlier. On one hand, you want to respect students' boundaries. So let me back up, if you're not familiar. Uh, A lot of, particularly master's programs, not so much psychology programs, but master's in counseling, master's in marriage and family therapy programs, will have this element of of experiential learning is what we might call it. And we might have all the students sit in a circle and talk about their feelings, right? And talk about their experience of oppression. And there might be a lot of crying and there might be a lot of bonding in this way. So on, on one hand, when you do that, you threaten the student's boundaries and you are forcing the student to be emotionally vulnerable when that is unfair to force someone to do in the in academia, right? On the other hand, when you do that, you create a tremendous amount of experiential learning because the students learn by experiencing emotion and experiencing the human the human thing that we're talking about, and they witness other people going through it as well. And so you you witness it that way, and it can be incredibly bonding. I mean, it could be argued that me and Bob are good friends partially because at my program in the 90s at Antioch there was a lot of experiential learning and Bob and I bonded in class because there was a lot of discussion of emotion so you can really learn a lot about each other and it can be very um, helpful and very normalizing to have that happen but on the other hand for some people if they don't want to do that kind of you know exercise in, in a required class then should they, you know, they should be allowed to not have to do that. 
And in the ethical codes, there are actually there is actually discussion of this, particularly in the field of psychology for psychologists. Psychologist degrees tend to um, not have these kinds of experiential elements as much. But anyway, so you're asking me, you know, um, what I, you know, I don't know what you're saying. So I wonder if you are comfortable speaking to this pattern of personal boundary blurring. Yeah, so the key that I always use, and I don't use a lot of this, but I do uh, do it because uh, students want it. Students come to Antioch presumably because they want some experiential learning. They want some human learning, some human experiences. And what I really try to do is I engineer it such that for those who don't, it's usually a minority of people, which is fine in the class. If they don't want to do it, they can basically opt out without being humiliated. So, for example, I might do an empty chair exercise where I, you know, at the end of the quarter of a family of origin class, I might have everyone think about someone in their family and imagine what kind of conversation they would really love to have with that person, that kind of thing. And so it's a long exercise where I have them close their eyes and they do deep, you know, relaxation and then they visualize the person in front of them and and then they open their eyes and they free write about what they would want to say to that person. And there's often a lot of tears. But what I say in the beginning is, so if this is too much for you, if this is too triggering for you, or you just don't want to do it, all you have to do is close your eyes and just act like you're doing it. And you can just think about something else. And I will never know the difference. And I'm not going to call on you afterwards and ask you what you came up with. I'm only going to, at the end of this whole thing, I'm only going to ask for volunteers. And so if you don't want to do this or you're just not into it or it's too much for you right now, just don't do it and I won't know. So I engineer the exercise such that those people who want to dive in will and those who don't will just sit quietly and I don't know, did they do it and they just don't really have much to say or did they opt out? I don't know. And so we, so that person isn't humiliated or, you know, ousted or identified as someone who's, who's not doing it. Now, I will say that I have witnessed some professors who are pretty good at this kind of work with students really force students to do it when they probably shouldn't, right? So in my, I've always been a huge advocate for student autonomy because uh, as a student myself, when I was in graduate school, there were times when I felt like the professors would force me to do things and I had no ability to push back because what are you supposed to do? They, you know, these professors can kick you out of the program. They can, they can ruin your life. You know, being kicked out of a program halfway through, you're already into it for $100,000 in three years of your life. And, and you can't transfer those credits. So at any time, professors can just completely ruin your life. They have tremendous control. I have tremendous control and power over my students. And I feel like that needs to be really respected. And so when you require students to do things, you have to be really careful about what you're requiring of them because they typically have no recourse to push back on that. So you really have to be careful. Now, I will say also that the professors who do a lot of this that I know, I don't, I mean, this is more my older, my you know, earlier career. Um, and when I do it, these experiences can be mind-blowing and can be, you know, things, you know, like there are people, students of mine, who, you know, they might have like 15 memories from, from the entirety of graduate school and like seven of them are these sort of experiential learning moments. It can be incredible, including myself as a professor, um, you know, I'll, I'll do an exercise where 
I will have a student who volunteers, and I tell them what they're volunteering for beforehand, where they will do a sculpture of their family. So the student will stand up, and I'll say, okay, I want you to pick a, a fellow student to represent your father and your mother and your siblings and your best friend. And I want you to put them around the room in a you know, symbolic representation of how close they are to you and how you feel about them. And they might, you know, if their dad was very domineering, they might put their dad up on a chair and he's clenching his fist. And if the mom is is very depressed, they might put the mom character laying them down on the floor as if they're just sleeping all day long. And sister is in the corner crying or something. You know, it can be really intense. And the students, when they do this, can have intense emotional reactions. When, when you... Uh, you know, when you depict your whole family scenario, particularly if I ask someone, you know, create your family when you were 10, then the student can have a total emotional meltdown. And But I'm there, and emotions are okay, and meltdowns are normal and human. And, you know, we're there to talk about it afterwards, and it's all volunteer. And I tell people, you might have a meltdown. And so just know that if you're volunteering to do this, this might happen. But these can be profound experiences that can really teach things that you cannot teach just by reading a book. All right, let's take a break. Hey, Deserving Listeners. As you all know, I am constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. Well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it really helps us out. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, which is great because you deserve it. And I know also that it can be hard to find a good fit, find the right one for you. Well, one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. I've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month today. All right, we're back from the break. If you hear a low hum in your ears while this episode is going, it's because I am recording this in my office, which is right next to our laundry room in our house. And Stacy, my wife, is doing some laundry, and so you might be hearing some of the dryer just humming along there. Your device is not malfunctioning. All right, let's do an OPP, an old patron praise. So this is where I talk about patrons that have been along for a long time. And these patrons that we're highlighting today are from June 2016. So these these fine folks became patrons of the podcast five years ago in June of 2016, and they have remained patrons the entire time. We have Kate from Boston. Thank you, Kate. We have Susie from Whittier, California. Susie, I'm pretty sure you and I have corresponded over email. We have Annie from Houston. We have Benedict. We have Ashley from East Hampton, Massachusetts. And we have Haley or Halea from Brisbane, Australia. Is it Brisbane or Brisbane? Pretty sure it's Brisbane. (laughs) Thank you, Kate, Susie, Annie, Benedict, Ashley, and Halea or Haley, for staying patrons this entire time. All right, let's get to another email here. 
This next email, anonymous patron from the Czech Republic, writes in and says, My close friend, who is 26 years old, seemed very depressed and avoidant lately. A few years ago, I finally managed to have a genuine conversation with him, and he confessed to me that he has a micropenis, and he really is emotionally and mentally suffering from it. He is a good-looking guy and a generally a great guy. Because of this issue, though, is of his micropenis, he is afraid to date girls, and he is really self-conscious about it. I was really glad that he told me, because it seems that he is suffering a lot from it. I tried to soothe him and tell them that he is a great person no matter what, and that if he finds a girl that loves him, it doesn't matter. But honestly, these talks are not helping at all. It made me wonder about how other guys deal with this issue, and if you have some advice for him. End of email. Yeah, so I don't know about the Czech Republic, but in my society, we have a massive problem of various sorts of body shaming for all peoples of various genders. But for men, one of the manifestations of this ridiculousness is the idea of penis size. And for people who have what is referred to as a micropenis, they are particularly oppressed and made fun of. It's literally a punchline in various different jokes. And you people of all genders, not just men, but women will make jokes too about how small the penis is or how um, impotent someone is, you know, these kinds of things. And it is pervasive. And there's no oasis, you know, there's no advocacy group, you know, there's no micro penis pride parade, right? And just this, just me saying that probably makes you giggle because you're used to laughing at that kind of thing. But it's just the way someone was born, and we need to, you know, divorce ourselves from giggling at such adolescent stupid things. Someone was born with a, you know, small penis. Who cares? It doesn't have any ref- reflection on who they are as a human being, and it doesn't have any reflection on their sexual prowess and their their ability to enjoy sex. Having a very small penis or any sort of out of the norm, uh, you know, physical aspect usually doesn't prevent someone from having a fully rich, wonderful, mutually satisfying sex sex life. It doesn't take much imagination to, you know, know that the size of your penis doesn't affect things that much. Now, you can, uh, there's things you might have to do a little differently, maybe, I don't know, but maybe not. And most people want to find a companion. They're not looking for a person with a gigantic, you know, rod. <laughs> I don't know what word to say. I don't usually talk about this sort of thing on the podcast. But um, <laughs> uh, the the point is, is that we have we have a massively, I don't, and I'm guessing similar in the Czech Republic, body shaming culture, and this is one of the aspects. And so, of course. He is depressed because society is telling him that he's an awful, you know, terrible person, someone that will never be able to, you know, satisfy anyone, someone that will never be loved, someone that should be ashamed of themselves, someone that should crawl into a hole and never come out, um, someone who isn't really a man. You'll hear that as well. I mean, we, we literally have these phrases like, oh, my God, that person has big balls. And what does that mean? Like the bigger one part of your, you know, random piece of anatomy means that you have more bravery or something that you're able to, uh, you know, have courage. Like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why do we do that? Well, because of culture and it's been around for a while 
And uh, you know, there's a lot of you – know, we, we all know that Black Lives Matter. We all know that Asian people are being uh, you know, oppressed in certain ways. We all know that feminism is important and sexism is a thing and transphobia is a thing. But these are just some of the general oppressions that we inflict on ourselves as a society. There are so many other frontiers that are before us, including this one. All right, this next email is from Elsa. She writes, I was wondering if you have any opinions on anti-psychiatry. End of email. Well, yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. Most of the anti-psychiatry rhetoric is completely unscientific and cherry-picking data and is ideologically motivated. So it's, it's silly. Now, it, psychiatry is a complicated thing. The, the bottom line is that there are psychiatric medications and psychiatric treatments that have been shown by empirical observation to work better than placebo. Do they have high rates of success? Um, you know, it depends on the medication, depends on the treatment, depends on the person responding. But there are, you know, a good enough rate of success to justify the profession. Let's just put it that way. You know, someone who is bipolar and they are taking medications for bipolar will tell you that they need that medication to function. If someone is suffering from ongoing anxiety and they're taking an anti-anxiety medication, they absolutely need that medication to, to function. So there are things that work now. Are there side effects that should be considered? Absolutely. Are some medications prescribed too much? Absolutely. Happens all the time. Are some prescribers just throwing pills at people without considering the bigger picture? That can happen. Absolutely. But, you know, many prescribers are responsible and and good at looking at people holistically. So, you know, anti-psychiatry movements like the one that Scientology does or, you know, other kinds of people, that they usually make some good points, but they usually take it way too far. All right, this next email is from upper-tier patron Gabriella. She says, I've been battling depression for many years. I am currently using BetterHelp and have found a great therapist. I'm embarrassed to tell her some of my real thoughts that are very degrading to myself and sometimes very scary. And I've been doing some reading and feel like I may suffer from anhedonia. I feel little joy in relationships with my son and my partner, and I don't enjoy things that I used to, or really anything. I find myself pretending to be happy when I'm working or when I need to be happy for others. Can you explain this in more detail, and how is this usually managed? Is this real? End of email. Okay. Well, first off, Gabriella, I'm really sorry you're battling depression. Depression is really the worst and I encourage you, of course, to talk with your therapist about this. Therapists are trained to work with people regarding depression and specifically anhedonia. So what you're describing is pretty typical to depression, which is feeling little joy in anything, including relationships. People often think that depression is crying all the time, and it certainly can be that. But more typically, it's, the, it's characterized by just a numbness that... Just nothing seems enjoyable, no emotions, just you're just blah. People will just stare at the wall because they don't want to do anything. Or they might just watch TV because there's nothing else to do, but they don't even really want to watch TV. And that's really the tragedy of depression. It just, it just strips away everything that you enjoy in life. 
and makes it so nothing is, you don't have motivation to do anything. And so what a lot of people will do, such as you, Gabriella, is that you feel bad or ashamed. And so you end up acting like you're happy when you're not. And so I'm, I'm really sorry you're going through that. You say, you know, can you explain it in more detail? Well, you know, I would talk with your therapist about it specifically. Um, how is this usually managed? Well, it's usually managed by doing psychotherapy and medication uh, or a combination or a you know balance or one or the other or a combination of both. And then you ask, is it real? Yeah, it's, abs- it's absolutely a real, you know, very common characteristic of major depression. And what I'll say is that it's possible that we evolved as animals to have this state as a helpful state. There are two different scenarios that are hypothesized as to why anhedonia and more generally depression is actually a helpful adaptation for our species, and it's, and it, it's reflected in other species as well, that when we are abandoned as children, uh, you know, imagine 200,000 years ago and the hunter-gatherer tribe is on the move and a child that's one year old lo- loses sight of their family and their kin and their tribe. And the first reaction is to scream for, you know, the first thing that a child will do is scream and cry and search. But if they can't find their tribe, then it's useful for the child to become depressed or, uh, you know, to essentially not move, to become very still, to not have motivation. And you can't tell a one-year-old child, you know, if you lose the tribe, just hunker down. Uh, You need the animals to have the instinct to do that. So sometimes it would help. And then uh, the the reason is, is because if, if you've lost the tribe for a significant amount of time and you scream and scream and scream the whole time, one, you'll, you'll use a lot of energy that you might need to survive the night. But the other thing is, is you might attract a lot of predators. And so it helps to just hunker down and wait for the tribe to you know, circle back and find you. So we might have evolved this depressive state as a reaction to when we feel like we're being left behind. And of course, in our complicated uh, internet society today, there might be a lot of experiences where we feel like we're being left behind. Or in our you know, very uh, distant world with our loved ones, you know, they work all day, we hardly ever see them. We can feel alone and abandoned and depression will kick in because it's like, okay, hunker down, eventually your tribe will find you. And if you have too much motivation and you move around a lot, you might actually attract predators. The other situation that depression might have evolved from in addition is it helps when you get into a confrontation with, so in, it's possible we come from a, a species that, or the early on in our species, that the social order was hierarchical in some ways, in, in that some people were at the, at the top of the hierarchy and some people were at the bottom of the hierarchy, socially speaking. And when we would confront people to try to move up in the hierarchy, to get more resources, to get uh, mates, this kind of thing. Then we are engaging in a fight and we get real riled up during that state. Well, let's say that we lose. Well, when we lose in that 
scenario as we're trying to move up in the social hierarchy, it actually serves us to become depressed in that moment because if we continue to stay riled up, we might risk furthering our conflict with that person and we might get injured and die. And so if we're losing, it's probably a good idea physiologically to kind of shut down, slow down, you know, uh, realize your place in the order and you know, eventually return to normal. So, and other species will do this, by the way. We will observe in other you know, social animals that when they are in a fight with each other regarding hierarchy and one person loses, the person who loses will physiologically actually become slower. And it, it, it would stand to reason that would be an adaptation. Well, for us humans... Again, in our current society, we might feel like we're losing all the time. And we have a very good ability with our brain to imagine our, our losses repeatedly. Other animals have a harder time thinking abstractly or can't think that way at all. And, but, we, but we have the ability to think about every loss we've ever had and every loss we might have. Other animals, they can't do that, right? So we can experience loss and we can experience humiliation because of our, you know, extremely sophisticated brains over and over and over. And we can imagine humiliation and loss and rejection that didn't even really happen, but might happen in the future. And so it's possible that because of our extremely strong ability to imagine things and to predict things, that we are experiencing way too much loss and it's tricking our brain into saying, okay, you need to, you need to kick in the depressive state to, to stop yourself from confronting other people in the tribe because if you continue to do that, you might harm yourself. Anyway, that's just neither here nor there. The, the bigger issue here, Gabrielle, is that you're depressed and you really need to talk with your therapist about it. You might want to consult with a prescriber and, you know, get the help you need and bring your son and your partner into it and say, hey, I'm depressed. I want you to talk with my therapist about it. I need support on this. I don't want to act like I'm not depressed. I don't want that burden. It's hard enough as it is. You deserve that. All right. This next me- email is from upper tier patron Molly from Oklahoma. She writes, I've been seeing a therapist for a while to process a rape I went through a few years ago. The therapy has been really helpful. The one thing that persists, however, is that I am still very easily startled by loud noises and sudden movements. It's embarrassing when other people notice. Will my startle startle response ever calm down? How can I speed up the process? End of email. Well, first off, Molly, I'm really sorry that you had to go through that. It's truly awful. I'm glad that you're getting help, which is great. And you're talking about the exaggerated startle, startle response as a element of your reactivity to the trauma, which is really normal. It's a common part of PTSD, and you shouldn't shame yourself for that. And you're asking, you know, how do I, how do I get it to calm down? How do I speed up the process? It's embarrassing. Just tell people around you that, hey, I'm going to be a little skittish. I'm going to be a little, uh, I'll be easily startled by things that are happening around me because of what I went through. And so I just like a little bit of grace along those issues. If strangers 
look at you funny, you know, screw them. Uh, they don't need to know any of your business and they can go to hell. So just don't shame yourself. Tell people close to you, look, this is who I am. This is normal. Obviously, you know, talking with your therapist, you can't speed up the process any more than you can speed up the recovery from victimization. There's a possibility that you'll always be a little bit of a, you know, there's a possibility that your startle response will always be a little exaggerated. Um, it, it, some people just have that uh, for their whole life, or it's triggered by a trauma, and it'll persist even though PT, other PTSD symptoms will subside with treatment. So, you know, I wouldn't shame yourself for it. It's just one of those things. You can't do anything about it. It's not a conscious thing. And talking with your therapist will help. And, you know, over time, it, it might go away. Essentially, the body is saying, danger is out there. And I need to be hypervigilant to protect myself from that, from that danger. And I have to react very quickly if something scary happens to me. It's an unconscious thing. It's not a conscious thing, obviously. But anyway, that's what I'll say about that. This next email is from Epitier patron Tom from Vancouver. He writes, In some of your recent 90 Day Fiancé reaction videos, you talk about how partners can communicate and, f and fulfill each other's needs. I come from an enmeshed family, and I have done a lot of work in therapy on boundaries, differentiation, and not taking responsibilities for others' emotions, including feeling less guilty and learning how to say no to others. How do you find a healthy balance between fulfilling someone's needs versus taking responsibility for them? How can you tell the difference? End of email. Yeah, this is a really interesting question. How do you tell the difference between taking responsibility for someone else's feelings in an unhealthy way and being a compassionate you know, person and, and trying to help someone out? And as a thought experiment, I'll just think about myself. So let's say that my wife is having a bad day and I notice it and I want to help naturally because I love her and I want to help her out. And so I reach out to her and I say, Hey, do you need anything or do you need a hug or do you want to talk about it? And let's say that, you know, under optimal conditions, she has the resources or prefers to, t to talk with me or you know, prefers to have me take care of her in some way, and that helps her, and then we're fine. But let's say that she is pushing back somehow, that she's like, no, just leave me alone right now. Okay, so now I'm in kind of this bind, right, between, well, I, I'm, I, I have a hard time uh, separating. You know, she's telling me to go away, but I know she's suffering and she's kind of dragging me down a little bit. So I kind of want to help and I feel like she should let me help. But that seems weird because if she doesn't want my help, then that's not my place. But should I try to push past it? Should I just try to forget it? Like I don't care about her. Should I commiserate with her? You know, these are the binds that people get in. And how do you know the difference? You know, if if my wife was going through something really, really horrible, like a death in her family and she was suffering and I went to her and said, Oh, you know, can I help you? And she was like, no, I don't need any help right now. Should I just, uh, walk away and go, okay, la da, I'm going to have a wonderful day. You know, probably not. I should probably 
at least sit with her. I don't, she doesn't have to talk to me, but I should at least commiserate or show respect or something uh, and take on her feelings, right? In, in that way, even though she's not asking me to. So it gets kind of weird. You know, what's the difference between, you know, in more subtle instances, how do, how do we navigate that? How do we tell the difference? You know, I, th- I think it, I think it depends on a few things. One is, is how much does the other person want me to take it on? You know, does my wife want me to take on her feelings a little bit? Or is she just like indifferent or is she actively not wanting me to? The other thing is, is, you know, is it harming us or, you know, me or them if I take on those feelings, if I take responsibility? You know, someone is upset at me for something. Maybe this is probably a better example, Tom. Someone's upset at me because they feel, you know, say a student is upset at me at at my university because she feels that I did something wrong. But upon reflection and consultation with other professors, we've determined that I didn't do anything wrong. So the student is upset. Now, I will help the student as best I can, but how much should I take on those feelings? On one hand, I should care. Even if I don't think I did anything wrong, I should care about the student's feelings and, and, and be affected by it and maybe try to make it right. But on the other hand, if someone is just having an unreasonable reaction, then, you know, it's not my responsibility. So where's the line there? On one hand, I, I want to help and I should care. But on the other hand, that's their feelings and not mine. And after contemplation and interaction, I've decided, you know what? There's nothing I can do. So I'm going to, I don't know what I can do. So if I could, I should reach out. But the questions are, do they want me to? Because maybe they're just having their feelings and they don't really care. The second question is, is it going to destroy one of us or both of us if I do try to take on those feelings and do, you know, think about them a lot and really try to uh, interact with a person to try to make up for it? Because if I can do a little bit and it'll help and it's welcomed, then, you know, I'll do that maybe, depending. (laughs) Probably. But if I'm going to lose sleep over their feelings because I'm getting closer and closer to their emotionality that is distorted and unreasonable. So I'm destroying myself in the process. Then that is what we might call an unhealthy boundary. And we might call undifferentiation, you know, a differentiated person would say, well, I want to help, but I don't want to destroy myself. And, uh, whereas an undifferentiated person would say, I have to do something because someone else is upset at me. So it's an interesting question up to your patron Tom from Vancouver that I haven't really thought about. And I think I'll give it some more thought, but I think my initial reaction satis- is satisfying a little bit, but not entirely. Let me know what you think. All right. This next email or this next question is from discord. Alex writes, has a client ever stopped seeing you because they didn't like what you said, even though it was to help them. How do you deal with clients not liking what you say? End of question. Yeah, absolutely. Clients have fired me because they didn't like what I was saying, even though I think it wasn't terrible what I said. It it hasn't happened in many years, but in the 
beginning of my career, I had a lot more clients and uh, there was just a higher rate of this kind of thing. And I remember there was this one couple that I was seeing. Whenever I think about uh, a, a situation where a client fires me, I think about this one couple that I felt like we had bonded well enough over, I don't know, five, 10 sessions. And there came this moment where they were getting into this conflict. Well, it's, it's not important to go into details, but they were in some sort of conflict. And at this, up until this point, most of the attention was on the husband. We were really focusing on what the husband was doing wrong and what he could do to change so that the relationship would go better. And in this moment, I felt it was important to focus on the wife a little bit. And I shifted focus uh, to the wife and was trying to say what she could do differently. Maybe this was like the fifth session or something. I think it was pretty early. And she did not like what I said. <laughs> she, and I, I think I might have, in my head, I and what is typical to me, I probably just doubled down in a stupid way of just like repeating myself. I tend to do that when I feel misunderstood. I'll, I'll just repeat myself in different words, which obviously doesn't help <laughs> the situation. And I remember really feeling like, oh, I've lost her. <laughs> she, She's done with me. She really does not think I'm a good person. And I'm probably never going to see him again. And I'm, and I'm 95% sure, yeah, I never did see him again. So yeah, it happens. You know, how, how do you deal with it? Well, you try to learn from it. Uh, when when I have supervisees that this happens, we always review, the, you know, as many details as we can. Not to rub the therapist's face in it and shame them, but to help them learn from what happened. Now, they might have done nothing wrong, but it's still important to know when there is a premature termination what what went wrong because you know we should do everything we can as therapists to try to prevent that the other side of it is it's emotionally hard to deal with for therapists particularly in the beginning of their career because they're so insecure anyway that when they're fired by a client it can be really devastating you know it's this really sharp um abrupt example or evidence that you're not a good therapist or not good enough or something. And it's a fear that most therapists have anyway, uh, particularly, like I said, novice therapists. Some novice therapists deal with it better than others, but it's, you know, it's generally a fear. So there's usually an emotional recovery component to it that, uh, you know, takes time and consulting with others, getting support. All right, this next question on Discord is from Ace. They write, how do you heal from arrested development and become more mature? How do you have corrective experiences on your own? How do you become more emotionally intelligent? End of questions. Well, these are huge questions, which you could just listen to the whole catalog of this podcast for a lot of guidance on some of this. But the short answer I'll say uh, is, you know, how do you have corrective experiences on your own? Well, secure relationships. You can have you can engineer secure relationships with a therapist, which is a formalized corrective experience, but you can also have corrective experiences with secure relationships with family, friends, spouses, this sort of thing. And when you cultivate that, then those can be very corrective, meaning that 
it shows you that you're worth it and that people can be trusted. You can also have a corrective experience with yourself. We have a relationship with ourselves. And if you love yourself, if you forgive yourself, if you have compassion for yourself, that also can be corrective. I caution people from relying on this entirely, of course, because it can only go so far. How do you become more emotionally intelligent? Well, you want to become emotionally aware and then able to regulate your emotions. This takes a lot of time and is kind of hard to do on your own. But if you really wanted to, you study emotions. You know, you could just Google, like, what are the different emotions? And you want to spend as much time as you can evaluating your emotional state throughout the day and really trying to get to know that. For some people, that's really hard, though. And without someone there to help them, then it might be hard for them to know their own emotional state. But if you have some connection with your emotionality, just spending a lot of time saying, hmm, I think I feel, I think I feel frustrated right now. What am I frustrated about? What does frustration feel like? How do I regulate that? What should I do? Should I talk with someone about it? When I'm angry, what are my options? Do I, you know, cut, do I shut down and, you know, give everyone the cold shoulder or do I just kind of talk about it? So it's all about awareness. And then what do you do with it? And how can you be emotional? Emotional intelligence, generally speaking, is the ability to know your emotions in a you know quick enough fashion and knowing what to do when you have those emotions in a way that doesn't hurt yourself or others. Okay, so next question is also from Ace on Discord. They write, I don't know whether or not I want to have kids. How can I get in touch with my inner self and find the answer? I'm 35 and I'm on the fence. End of question. Yeah, this is an interesting phenomenon, not only with kids, obviously, but any kind of major decision. And there are two things I'll say, and they're pretty complicated topics, so I'm not going to summarize it you know, completely. But one thing is to spend a lot of time thinking and talking about it. Um, with my clients who are struggling with a major decision like divorce or something, we will spend a lot of time, and, and I found this to really help, talking about it and thinking about it, journaling about it. You just spend a lot of time with the indecision, with the ambivalence. What some people will do is they will feel the ambivalence and then they will avoid it completely. And they will they don't want to talk about it because they don't know what to do. But that just keeps them stuck in the ambivalence. So so you want to spend a lot of time, you know, thinking, this is what a lot of people do, including me. When I'm really mulling something over, I think about it a lot and I, you know, I, I talk about it a lot. Uh, I don't know if I've talked about, I'm pretty sure I have, but I'm actually transitioning at my university to a, uh, a smaller role at the university and because of the podcast mainly, but also just because I've been teaching in Antioch for almost 25 years. And there's a certain parts of the admin side of things that I just, I just, I'm completely burnt out on. I don't know if the pen, I think the pandemic was kind of, it kind of exacerbated it, but for the past, I don't know, three plus years, uh, I will talk about it sometimes, you know, me and, the wife will be on a walk with the dogs and, and I'll just, I'll just be like, you know, I've been thinking about maybe scaling back at, at the university a bit and, uh, well, you know, cause the pros and the cons and, you know, maybe I need to give it a couple more years and maybe my mojo will come back 
that kind of talk. And, you know, I mulled it over, talked about it uh, with others for a long time before I came to the very firm realization that I really did need to scale back, which leads me to the other part of the decision-making process is listening to your feelings. As I talked about it and thought about the different aspects of working at it. You know, people, whenever I say I'm a professor, they're like, oh, you know, teaching. Teaching at it, so when you're a full-time professor, the teaching is like a minor part of your job, which might be surprising to some. There's so many other aspects of working at a university that really have nothing to do with teaching and have everything to do with just working at a business. You know, meetings, (laughs) I say with derision, you know, pesky meetings and and marketing this and that and admissions this and that and some drama that happens with a racist coworker or some student who needs to be kicked out of the program some some student who got kicked out who's suing all of us and we all have to show up at court you have to uh, write these reports of various different kinds there's outcomes and accreditation and you know there's just uh, just all sorts of you know crap that you have to do and when i was you know earlier in my career i looked forward to it to some extent or at least tolerated it but at a certain point i and the more i thought about it the more i talked about it the more i just felt this disdain for it in my gut i just didn't i you know it was a physical feeling i had when i when i was asked to do these things and I, when, when I thought about having to do them again for the rest of my life, I, I just couldn't stand it. I, it, I felt, had an emotional feeling, you know, we call it a valence. And that tells me something is different. That tells, that gives me an idea of what my body needs, you know. And I have the luxury with all y'all becoming patrons of the podcast to scale back, which incidentally means I get to spend even more time making podcasts, which incidentally means more deep dives primarily. Um, So come July of this year, I will be officially transitioned to what we call adjunct professor, which means that all I do is teach. I don't go to any freaking meetings. I don't have anything to do with accreditation. I don't do any advising. I don't have to show up to any uh, interviews for prospective students. I don't have to do crap. All I get to do, I do, I get to do all the best stuff, which is to show up and teach classes and go home. And what that means is a lot more free time because, you know, it's a full-time job at the university to make deep dives, which I am really looking forward to because, you know, I don't know if you know y'all, but I have a full-time job at the university. I have a part-time job as a therapist, um, I actually closed my supervision practice so I could spend more time in the podcast. And, you know, obviously I have other things going on in my life. And so, uh, and the podcast is a full-time job at this point. So anyway, point is, is I talked about it. I listened to my feelings and I made a decision. Now, the third thing I'll say is that some people due to their upbringing have been raised in a way that make it so that it's really hard for them to know what they feel and to feel confident in how they feel about things. In the recent deep dive for patrons only that I did on dependent personality disorder, this is one of those conditions, but there are, there are others. But when you are raised in a way where you're not allowed to make decisions, or you were traumatized when you made decisions, or you were made to feel incompetent, 
or you were overprotected and no one allowed you to make your own mistakes, so you don't really know what it's like to make a decision because everyone made decisions for you. Then when you're faced with a decision, you might just stare into the darkness because you have no idea what you're supposed to do. You're just thinking, well, I don't even know where to begin. And so what people will do is they'll just avoid the whole thing. And they might not even know that there's something different about them. Uh, but at any rate, it, that's a longer term therapy issue, right? To recover from those kinds of traumas takes a long time. And when you get in touch with yourself and your emotions and you learn that you can make decisions and you learn that you are competent to make your own choices and you're not flinching from making choices, then you can begin to know, yes, this is what I want. You know, and it's kind of weird to think about because people ask me this question uh, a lot and there's a fair amount of research on it, which I won't go into, but when you think about it, it's kind of a weird thing. How do we know what we want, you know? And we make decisions all day long. You go to the uh, the cafeteria and you look at the food or you go to a restaurant, there's a menu. How do you make a choice? Well, you say, well, I like, I tend to like poutine. And so that's what I always order. Well, why do you like poutine? Well, I don't know. It just like tastes good. You know, people will talk about the qualities of it, but you know, poutine is a thing that all humans can interact with, but some people love it and some people don't. I imagine everyone loves poutine, honestly. I don't see how you could not like poutine. But, you know, let's go do another example, like kimchi, you know. I love kimchi. As a kid, I would eat kimchi sandwiches <laughs> voluntarily, just bread and kimchi. And, uh, but I don't think my wife likes kimchi that much because <laughs> it smells like dirty socks because it does smell like dirty socks. And... How do we, how do we know what we want? Why do we like what we want? And how, you know, so there's, it's just one of those things about humans that we just can't really put a finger on. And it's you know, like maybe a bigger thing is like, why did you fall in love with that person? Why do you like that person and not the other person? Why does that person like you and not the other person? Why didn't that one person like you, but you liked them, even though you're really compatible together? Why is that? Well, we'll again, we'll come up with a narrative as to, as to why. Well, you know, his feet smell and so da-da-da. But usually it's it's something that we can't really put our finger on. Je ne sais quoi, if you will. This next question is from Petite on Discord. Dr. Kirk, in my country lately, we, ha we are seeing a, the long-term effects of isolation and COVID from COVID restrictions. Many of us have been struggling so much with our mental health, and although we keep in touch by social media, we are so deprived of face-to-face -face interactions, and we are advised to keep it to a minimum. Suicide rates are on the rise in my country, and I'm wondering, do you have any recommendations on how to cope, adapt to long-term isolation, especially since there is no time limit on it? End of question. Yeah, I do not know the answer to this question. And we're all suffering. I am suffering too. I, I don't really know if my suffering is because of the isolation. I suspect it might be, but yeah, it's, it's pretty awful. You know, you know me, I, I will say we're not meant for this kind of isolation. We're meant to be near our tribe our entire lives within eye, within eye and earshot of, of our tribe. Most of the time, you know, think about bonobos and, and chimps. They don't, you know, they don't isolate in their own cave. They, they're with each other all day long. So 
when we're isolated like that, it makes sense that we would have stress and, and a lot of distress from that. That could cause all sorts of problems, suicide, depression, physical problems, this sort of thing, relationship problems, anger. And I don't know the answer to it. What are we supposed to do? Uh, we're living in an inhumane situation. How are we supposed to fix that? I don't know. I think, you know, social media is great, but it, it, I don't think it can really replace being he- connected really to another person. So, you know, earlier today, Bob and I were on the phone commiserating about various different things and it felt good. So, you know, talking on the phone, you know, video, if you want to, if I don't know, I don't like video conferencing, maybe it's just because of my age. I don't like staring at a flat screen and neither of us have eye contact. I'd rather just talk on the phone. So, but the point is, is like, do what you can. Is that going to make up for it? I don't know. Go on walks. You know, you're not supposed to be in physical contact, but you know, you you can go on walks with people and connect to that way. So I think the only antidote really is just try to connect with other people, you know, find a way, phone or walking or I suppose video, social media, maybe, but, uh, do, you know, you gotta, we have to have contact with other human beings. Now, what this doesn't provide is physical contact, which we also need. You know, I really feel bad for people that are single during the pandemic and have no one to touch. We need other people to touch. Now, you get an animal, you could touch the animal a lot, but that, I think that only goes so far. That can go a long way, but I feel like it, it only goes so far. And, you know, sometimes it's easier said than done, obviously. I think another part of it is just listening to your feelings and talk about them. You know, petite, you're talking about essentially like, oh, we're struggling. Just talk about it. Don't don't internalize it. When when we struggle and we talk about it, it it relieves ourselves a little bit, right? Just be like, oh. Okay, this next email is from Upper Tier Patron Kim from Arizona. She writes, Last week I had a session with my therapist about my repulsion and aversion to sex. He asked me if it was possible that I was sexually abused as a child, but I have never had any memory of sexual abuse as a child. Yet, I exhibit almost all the symptoms of someone who experienced childhood sexual abuse. I've been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, a dissociative disorder, body dysmorphia, an eating disorder, autoimmune problems, GI problems, chronic nightmares. I'm a 33-year-old virgin who has never had a relationship and so many other things that show up on a list of common symptoms of childhood sexual abuse survivors. The writing seems to be on the wall that I was abused. Is it possible to get the memories to come to the surface? And how important is it to have actual memories of it in order to properly process it? End of email. Well, first off, up with your patron Kim from Arizona, I'm really sorry that you're going through this. That's a, a lot to deal with. Schizoaffective is a really tough disorder to deal with. And depending on your dissociation, that can also be pretty tough. Obviously an eating disorder and, you know, all the things you talked about, it's just, that's a lot to, that's a, that's a lot to deal with. And I'm sorry you're going through that. You're talking with a therapist about it. So good for you. So the first thing I'll say is just because you have all the common signs of having childhood sexual abuse does not mean you were sexually abused as a child. So if you don't have any memories of it, but you have a lot of the uh, the common results of it, 
you know, I, I don't know if that's a, 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 an assumption that you want to make that you were sexually abused as a child. There are a lot of other causes for a schizoaffective, dissociative, body dysmorphia, eating disorder, autoimmune, this kind of thing. So, uh, you know, aversion to sex can come from a lot of different places. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't assume that you were, you were sexually abused as a child. The other thing is, is there are other kinds of abuse that can cause all those things that don't have anything to do with sex. Physical abuse, this kind of thing, can absolutely result in um, sexual issues later on in life. So that's a possibility. It's also possible that uh, if we're just assuming that, if we're going off the assumption that you weren't sexually abused, that your disorders uh, developed in some other way created complications when it came to interacting sexually with people that have compounded or have created problems as a teenager or an adult. Like say you're having a mood swing and you try to date or something and you have a really horrible experience that is at least partially based on the fact that you're having a mood swing, mood difference that can be mildly traumatic and really cause a lot of issues sexually for people. So there's that. The other thing is, is, is it possible for someone to be sexually abused and not remember it? Yeah. I mean, especially if it happens when you're really young, right? The other thing that you ask is, is it, is it necessary to remember it? And, you know, that's a really good question, Kim, because it's not in order to recover from abuse or trauma. It's not entirely necessary that you remember exactly what happened you can get treatment, you can learn emotional regulation, you can talk about other kinds of issues that you've been through, and absolutely experience symptom reduction. So uh, there's that. The other thing is, is, you know, people talk about repressed memories. And what I'll say, and I've done whole episodes on repressed memories, you can go back to the catalog list of those, but the long and the short of it is that there, there's different definitions of repressed memories, and the sort of classic Freudian definition isn't really upheld by science. But can people have memories that are hard to access? Absolutely. It happens all the time. Someone is, say, for example, sexually abused by their teacher and even when they're you know seven years old, and they immediately know that something's wrong. They feel like there's something wrong with them. And they know they're not, or maybe they're threatened to not talk about it. So they just don't talk about it with anyone. They don't tell their friend. They don't tell their parents. They don't tell anyone about it. And they're stuck in the situation. So what do they do? Well, they just try to put it out of their mind. And so right after being abused, they might just try to move on with their life. So what this does, memory, you know, the way memories are formed are, you know, was it a significant thing that happened and was it encoded well? And also, did we repeat, did we talk about it frequently? Some of the most enduring memories that you have are there because you recalled them and or talked about them, which is recalling as well. So you can just recall the memory in your mind and or you can talk about it and it will solidify the memory. Now, is the memory accurate? No, memories are never accurate. Memories are always, you know, sort of a random amalgamation of things and can absolutely morph over time and do morph over time. But the point is, is that if you have a significant, significant, a moment and the 
event becomes encoded into your memory, but you don't talk about it very much, then over time, you might not have the ability really to recall it very easily. But, and you have reasons, obviously, because of PTSD to actually avoid thinking about it. So you grow into your adulthood. And even when something reminds you of what happened, you quickly uh, change the subject in your mind, so to speak, and avoid so that you don't have to remember because you don't want to. But let's say you end up in therapy and you're 45 years old and suddenly you start actually really thinking about it and you have the safety to think about it and your therapist is there and you start thinking, you know, I think something did happen to me when I was a kid. And then a couple sessions later, you're like, you know, I have this vague sense that something happened. And then the next session later, you're like, yeah, you know what? I'm pretty sure when I was four years old, this and this and this happened. And the more you talk about it, the more you know, becomes revealed. Now, can that be a false memory? It can be, but it usually isn't. And uh, now is that a repressed memory? Or was that a memory that you just literally never recalled until you were 45 years old, and it just takes a while to to kind of access it? You know, think about uh, an experience where you see a picture of your of yourself as a child, and you're you're doing something that you never remember doing. You're, you're looking at the picture like, I don't remember, I don't remember being on that, uh, on that ride at the, at the carnival. Like, I, I do not remember that. But then you start to think, you know, someone says, yeah, I remember it was like this. And there was this thing. And you maybe see a couple more pictures and, and then you're like going, oh yeah, I kind of remember that. And then you think about it. You're like, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. That's the thing that did this. So was that a repressed memory or did it just take a while to access? You know, if you, it, before you had that memory kind of coaxed out of you, if someone came up to you and said, did you ever go on this ride? You'd be like, no, never. And you'd say like, how sure are you? Be like, well, I don't have any memory of that. So is that a repressed memory or was it just a little bit harder to access? And there's all sorts of science on this that, uh, you know, demonstrates all the things I'm talking about. The other thing I'll say is that, uh, in the 80s and 90s, there was this movement that uh, that was propagated by my profession, a certain sliver of my profession, that believed that a lot of people, so there are a bunch of therapists who, and clinicians and theorists who basically believed that a lot of people have been sexually abused as children, but don't remember it because of repressed memories in the classical Freudian sense. And they... Uh, they were, you know, they were well-meaning, these therapists. They they wanted to help victims of childhood sexual abuse. And they would come across some people who actually were sexually abused. And they would, these therapists would help them to recall their memories so that they could recover from their traumas. But they got so overzealous with their idea and so determined that so many more people were sexually abused that they would pull people into therapy uh, or people would come to them for therapy. And over time, the therapist would essentially coach the person into convincing themselves that they were sexually abused. And then sometimes some of these clients who were falsely, uh, you know, who were given false memories of being sexually abused would actually prosecute their abusers falsely. And this was actually a huge movement called the repressed memory movement. I don't know if that's exactly what it was called, but it was called something like that. And so it was this huge 
black mark on my profession where all these, you know, people, uninformed people, overzealous people were just essentially planting memories in people you know the way that it works is you're talking to a 30 year old and you know say they have schizoaffective and they have all these other things and and the therapist is like well you certainly sound like someone who's been sexually abused and the person's like the client's like well i don't i don't have any memory of being sexually abused and the therapist is like well you know there's this thing called repressed memories and it's really possible that you you were abused but you don't really remember i mean can you, you know, can you remember things about your father? It was often, you know, coaxed, you know, to target the father, sometimes the mother, but the, you'd say, you know, did, do you, do you get a weird feeling around your dad? And the client's like, well, sometimes I guess, well, do you think he might've touched you inappropriate, you know, and you just slowly ask these questions because the therapist is convinced. Again, the therapist isn't malicious. The therapist believes they're doing the right thing, but they're actually, inadvertently participating in the in the implantation of a memory in the person to the point where you know a few months later the person is completely convinced they were sexually abused even though they weren't and how do we know the difference well what happens is a lot of the clients later on would say actually upon further reflection i wasn't sexually abused that therapist just convinced me i was and so you had a lot of clients you know taking back their testimony and saying i think i was just tricked by that therapist so you know these aren't people that held to their stories because you know how would you know maybe the therapist just was really good at helping people to recall memories i've done that kind of work with clients before but the thing you have to do as a therapist you just have to be really careful regarding what kind of questions you ask and you have to be very clear that you're not uh, searching for the you're not you don't want a particular answer as a interviewer you're actually purely curious and you, it, but it's kind of weird you know because someone actually could invent a memory because they just feel like it, it explains a few things um, so that's what I'll say about repressed memories it's really kind of interesting area and what I find is uh, you'll find people be on one of two sides they'll either be on the side of repressed memories are real and every time a client has a repressed memory it's our job to pull it out of them and help them and they're always you know it's always accurate and any and people who have signs of sexual abuse they probably were sexually abused you'll he you'll hear a lot of therapists say that they're like oh i bet you that person it's it actually kind of drives me nuts i'll be with students and i'll be presenting on a case and i'll you know be say okay what do y'all think about this? And some students will just say, oh, it kind of sounds like the person was sexually abused. And I'm like, where did you get that? <laughs> it seems like it's a, it's a very frequent hypothesis that people have. Now, might, you know, does sexual abuse happen a lot? Yes, it does. But I'm the one inventing the, the vignette and in no way, shape or form am I trying to steer the students towards, you know, thinking about sexual abuse in this case. And there's just, it's sort of just in the air. It's in our culture. We, I think it kind of goes back to Freud. We just have this assumption that, that it, it's, or maybe it's like we have a hard time thinking about other reasons for things. There's a lot of reasons why people suffer from various different conditions. And then I'll see people on the other side who are extremely skept, overly skeptical of people who recall abuse later in life. 
they'll say like, ah, oh, it's that old repressed memory thing. We've debunked that. That's bunk science. It's unscientific. We, so I'll see people sort of zealots on both sides, you know, of it's always sexual abuse on one side. And on the other side, they're saying, if you remember something later in life that you didn't recall earlier in life, then that's, you know, a bunch of BS. And they don't take on the more holistic understanding of the whole thing anyway. All right. Well, I think that does it for that episode. Everyone out there, let me know what you think. And please, please take care of yourself and connect with others during the hopefully final moments of the lockdown. And of course, get vaccinated because we all deserve it. We really, really do. We'll